Section 3 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Channon. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosita Johnson, and John Rudd. Decay of the Frankish Empire, division into modern France, Germany, and Italy, A.D. 843-911. Francois P.G. Guizon, Part 1. The period with which the following article deals may be said to mark the end of distinctively Frankish history. A striking mixture of races entered into the formation of this people, and the beginnings of the great modern nations into which the Frankish Empire was divided brought to them varied elements of strength and the diversity of constituents that were to be commingled in new national characters and careers. In 840, Charles the Bald became King of France, and his reign, both as king and afterward as emperor, continued for 37 years, during which he proved himself to be lacking in those qualities which his responsibilities and the wants of his people demanded. He had great obstacles to contend against, for besides the ambitions of various districts for separate nationality, which led to insurrections in many quarters, Greek pirates ravaged the south, where the Saracens also wrought havoc, while in the north and west the Northmen burned and pillaged, laying waste a wide region and leaving many towns in ruins. It was an age of turbulence in Europe, and the violence of predatory invaders brought woes upon many peoples. On the east of Charles' empire, the Hungarians, successor of the Huns, began to threaten. In the midst of all these distractions and dangers, assailed by enemies without and within, Charles found it a task far beyond his abilities to construct a state upon foundations of unity. He bore many titles and held several crowns, but his actual dominion was narrowly restricted, and his nominal subjects were in a state of political subdivision almost amounting to dismemberment. After various futile efforts during his later years to unify his empire, Charles died from an illness which seized him in 877, on his return to France from a fruitless campaign of subjugation and pillage in Italy. In the subsequent division of the empire, according to the terms of the Treaty of Verdun, the several portions including Italy, the nucleus of France, and that of the present Germany. Already suffering from the devastating expeditions of the Norse or Northmen, the Calavigian Empire, now weakened by division, became an easier prey for the invaders. Emboldened by success, the Northmen at length commenced to settle in the regions they invaded, no longer returning, as formerly, to their northern homes in winter. Among chieftains of the early Norman invaders who settled in France was Hastings, who became Count of Chartres, later on Roe, Rolf, or Rollo the Rover, to whom Charles the Simple of France gave Normandy, whence sprang the conquerors and rulers of England, who laid the foundations of the English-speaking nations of today. The first of Charlemagne's grand designs, the territorial security of the Gallo-Frankish and Christian dominion, was accomplished. In the east and the north, the Germanic and Asiatic populations, which had so long upset it, were partly arrested at its frontiers, partly incorporated regularly in its midst. In the south, 
the Muslim populations which in the 8th century had appeared so near overwhelming it were powerless to deal it any heavy blow. But what had become of Charlemagne's second grand design? The resurrection of the Roman Empire at the hands of the barbarians that had conquered it and become Christians. Let us leave Louis the Debonair his traditional name, although it is not an exact rendering of that which was given to him by his contemporaries. They called him Louis the Pious, and so, indeed, he was sincerely and even scrupulously pious. But he was still more weak than pious, as weak in heart and character as in mind, as destitute of ruling ideas as of strength of will, fluctuating at the mercy of traditionary impressions or surrounding influences or positional embarrassments. The name of Debonair is suited to him. It expresses his moral worth and his political incapacity both at once. As king of Aquitaine in the time of Charlemagne, Louis made himself esteemed and loved. His justice, his suavity, his probity and his piety were pleasing to the people and his weaknesses disappeared under the strong hand of his father. When he became emperor, he began his reign by reaction against the excesses, real or supposed, of the preceding reign. Charlemagne's morals were far from regular, and he troubled himself but little about the license prevailing in his family or his palace. At a distance he ruled with a tight and heavy hand. Louis established at his court for his sisters, as well as his servants, austere regulations. He restored to the subjugated Saxons certain of the rights of which Charlemagne had deprived them. He sent out everywhere his commissioners with orders to listen to complaints and redress grievances, and to mitigate his father's rule, which was rigorous in its application and yet insufficient to repress disturbance, notwithstanding its preventive purpose and its watchful supervision. Almost simultaneously with his accession, Louis committed an act more serious and compromising. He had, by his wife Hermengarde, three sons, Lothaire, Pepin and Louis, aged respectfully 19, 11 and 8. In 817, Louis summoned at Aule Chapelle the general assembly of his dominions, and there while declaring that, Neither to those who were wisely minded, nor to himself, did it appear expedient to break up, for the love he bare his sons, and by the will of man, the unity of the empire, preserved by God himself. He had resolved to the share of his eldest son, Lothaire, the imperial throne. Lothaire was in fact crowned emperor, and his two brothers, Pepin and Louis, were crowned king, in order that they might reign after their father's death, and under their brother and lord, Lothair. To wit Pepin, over Aquitaine, and a great part of southern Gaul and of Burgundy. Louis, beyond the Rhine, over Bavaria, and the divers peoples in the east of Germany. The rest of Gaul and of Germany, as well as the kingdom of Italy, was to belong to Lothair, emperor and head of the Frankish monarchy to whom his brothers would have to repair year by year to come to an understanding with him and receive his instructions. The last named kingdom, the most considerable of the three, remained under the direct government of Louis the Debonair, and at the same time of his son Lothaire, sharing the title of emperor. The two other sons, Pepin and Louis, 
entered, notwithstanding their childhood, upon immediate possession, the one of Aquitaine and the other of Bavaria, under the superior authority of their father and their brother, the joint emperors. Charlemagne had vigorously maintained the unity of the empire, for all that he had delegated to two of his sons, Pepin and Louis, the government of Italy and Aquitaine, with the title of king. Louis the debonair, while regulating beforehand the division of his dominion, likewise desired, as he said, to maintain the unity of the empire. But he forgot that he was no Charlemagne. It was not long before the numerous mournful experiences showed to what extent the unity of the empire required personal superiority in the emperor, and how rapid would be the decay of the fabric when there remained nothing but the title of the founder. In 816, Pope Stephen IV came to France to consecrate Louis the debonair emperor. The Franks had been proud to see their king, Charlemagne, protecting Adrian I against the Lombards, then crowned emperor at Rome by Leo III, and then having his two sons, Pepin and Louis, crowned at Rome by the same pope, kings respectively of Italy and of Aquitaine. On these different occasions, Charlemagne, while testifying the most profound respect for the Pope, had, in his relations with him, always taken care to preserve, together with his political greatness, all his personal dignity. But when, in 816, the Franks saw Louis the Pious not only go out of Rheims to meet Stephen IV, but prostrate himself from head to foot and rise only when the Pope held out a hand to him, the spectators felt saddened and humiliated at the sight of their emperor in the posture of a penitent monk. Several insurrections burst out in the empire, the first among the Basques of Aquitaine, the next in Italy, where Bernard, son of Pepin, having, after his father's death, become king in 812. With the consent of his grandfather Charlemagne, could not quietly see his kingdom pass into the hands of his cousin Lothair at the orders of his uncle Louis. These two attempts were easily repressed, but the third was more serious. It took place in Brittany among those populations of Armorica, who were still buried in their woods and were excessively jealous of their independence. In 818, they took the king, one of their principal chieftains, named Morvan, and, not confining themselves to refusal of all tribute to the king of the Franks, they renewed their ravages upon the Frankish territories bordering on their frontier. Louis was at that time holding a general assembly of his dominions at la chapelle and Count Lantbert, commandant of the Marches of Brittany, came and reported to him what was going on. A Frankish monk named Ditkar happened to be at the assembly. He was a man of piety and sense, a friend of peace, and moreover, with some knowledge of the Breton king Morvan, as his monastery had property in the neighbourhood. Him the emperor commissioned to convey to the king his grievances and his demands. After some days' journey, the monk passed the frontier and arrived at a vast space, enclosed on one side by a noble river, and on all the others by forests and swamps, hedges and ditches. In the middle of this space was a large dwelling, which was Morvan's. Didcar found it full of warriors, the king having, no doubt, some expedition on hand. 
The monk announced himself as a messenger from the Emperor of the Franks. The style of announcement caused some confusion at first to the Briton, who, however, hastened to conceal his emotion under an air of goodwill and joyousness to impose upon his comrades. The latter were got rid of, and the king remained alone with the monk, who explained the object of his mission. He discounted upon the power of the Emperor Louis, and countered his complaints, and warned the Briton, kindly and in a private capacity, of the danger of his situation, a danger so much the greater that he and his people would meet with a less consideration, seeing that they kept up the religion of their pagan forefathers. Morvan gave a tentative ear to this sermon, with his eyes fixed on the ground and his foot tapping it from time to time. Ditka thought he had succeeded, but an incident supervened. It was the hour when Morvan's wife was accustomed to come and look for him ere they retired to the nuptial couch. She appeared, eager to know how the stranger was, what he had come for, and what he had said, what answer he had received. She preluded her questions with oglings and caresses. She kissed the knees, the hands, the beard, and the face of the king, testifying her desire to be alone with him. O king and glory of the mighty Britons, dear spouse of mine, what tidings bringeth this stranger? Is it peace, or is it war? This stranger, answered Morvan with a smile, is an envoy of the Franks, but bring he peace or bring he war is the affair of men alone. As for thee, content thee with thy woman's duties. Whereupon Ditka, perceiving that he was accounted, said to Morvan, Sir King, tis time that I return. Tell me what answer I am to take back to my sovereign. Leave me this night to take thought thereon, replied the Breton chief with a wavering air. When the morning came, Tikhar presented himself once more to Morvan, whom he found up, but still half-drunk, and full of very different sentiments from those of the night before. It required some effort, stupefied and tottering, as he was with the efforts of wine and the pleasures of the night, to say to Ditka, Go back to thy king, and tell him from me that my land was never his, and that I owe him naught or tribute or submission. Let him reign over the Franks, as for me, I reign over the Britons. If he will bring war on me, he will find me ready to pay him back. The monk returned to Louis the debonair, and rendered account of his mission. War was resolved upon, and the emperor collected his troops, Aluminians, Saxons, Thuringians, Burgundians, and Aquitanians, without counting Franks or Gallo-Romans. They began their march moving upon Venet. Louis was at their head, and the empress accompanied him, but he left her already ill and fatigued at Angers. The Franks entered the country of the Britons, searching the woods and morasses, found no armed men in the open country, but encountered them in scattered and scanty companies, at the entrance of all the defiles, on the heights commanding pathways, and wherever men could hide themselves and await the moment for appearing unexpectedly. The Franks heard them from amid the heather and the brushwood, 
uttering shrill cries to give warning one to another or to alarm the enemy. The Franks advanced cautiously and at last arrived at the entrance of the thick wood which surrounded Morvan's abode. He had not set out with the pick of the warriors he had about him, but at the approach of the Franks he summoned his wife and his domestics and said to them, Defend ye well this house and these woods. As for me, I am going to march forward to collect my people, after which to return, but not without booty and spoils. He put on his armour and took a javelin in each hand and mounted his horse. Thou seest, said he to his wife, these javelins I brandish. I will bring them back to thee this very day, dyed with the blood of Franks. Farewell. Setting out, he pierced, followed by his men, through the thickness of the forest and advanced to meet the Franks. The battle began. The large numbers of the Franks, who covered the ground for some distance, dismayed the Britons, and many of them fled, seeking where they might hide themselves. Morvan, beside himself with rage and at the head of his most devoted followers, rushed down upon the Franks as if to demolish them at a single stroke and many fell beneath his blows. He singled out a warrior of inferior grade, toward whom he made at a gallop, and, insulting him by word of mouth, after the ancient fashion of the Celtic warriors, cried, Frank, I am going to give thee my first present, a present which I have been keeping for thee a long while, and which I hope thou wilt bear in mind. And launched at him a javelin, which the other received on his shield. Proud Briton, replied the Frank, I have received thy present, and I am going to give thee mine. He dug both spurs into his horse's sides, and galloped down upon Morvan, who, clad though he was in a coat of mail, fell pierced by the thrust of a lance. The Frank had but time to dismount and cut off his head, when he fell himself mortally wounded by one of Morvan's young warriors, but not without having, in his turn, dealt the other his death-blow. It spreads on all sides that Morvan is dead, and the Franks come thronging to the scene of the encounter. There is picked up and passed from hand to hand a head, all bloody and fearfully disfigured. Ditka the monk is called to see it and to say whether it is that of Morvan. But he has to wash the mass of disfigurement and to partially adjust the hair before he can pronounce that it is really Morvan's. There is then no more doubt. Resistance is now impossible. The widow, the family, and the servants of Morvan arrive, are brought before Louis the Debonair, accept all the conditions imposed upon them, Brittany is henceforth their tributary. On arriving at Unger, Louis found the Empress Hermengard dying, and two days afterward she was dead. He had a tender heart which was not proof against sorrow, and he testified a desire to abdicate and turn monk. But he was dissuaded from his purpose, for it was easy to influence his resolutions. A little later, he was advised to marry again, and he yielded. Several princesses were introduced, and he chose Judith 
of Bavaria, daughter of Count Welf, a family already powerful and in later times celebrated. Judith was young, beautiful, witty, and skilled in the art of making the gift of pleasing subserve the passion of ruling. Louis, during his expedition into Brittany, had just witnessed the fatal result of a woman's empire over her husband. He was destined himself to offer a more striking and more long-lived example of it. In 823 he had, by his new empress Judith, a son whom he called Charles, and who was hereafter to be known as Charles the Bold. This son became his mother's ruling, if not exclusive, passion, and the source of his father's woes. His birth could not fail to cause ill temper in Louis's three sons by Hermengard, who were already kings. They had but a short time previously received the first proof of their father's weakness. In 822, Louis, repenting of his severity toward his nephew, Bernard of Italy, whose eyes he had caused to put out as a punishment for rebellion, and who had died in consequence, considered himself bound to perform at Attigny, in the church and before the people, a solemn act of penance, which was credible to his honesty and piety. But the details left upon the minds of the beholders an impression unfavourable to the emperor's dignity and authority. In 829, during an assembly held at Worm, he, yielding to his wife's entreaties, and doubtless also to his own yearnings towards his youngest son, set at naught the solemn act whereby, in 817, he had shared his dominions among his three elder sons, and took away from two of them, in Burgundy and Alemannia, some of the territories he had assigned to them, and gave them to the boy Charles for his share. Lothier, Pepin, and Louis thereupon revolted. Court rivalries were added to family differences, the emperor had summoned to his side a young Southern, Bernard by name, Duke of Septimania, and son of Count William of Toulouse, who had gauntly fought the Saracens. He made him his chief chamberlain and his favourite counsellor. Bernard was bold, ambitious, vain, imperious, and restless. He removed his rivals from court and put in their place his own creatures. He was accused not only of abusing the emperor's favour, but even of carrying on a guilty intrigue with the Empress Judith. There grew up against him, and by consequence against the Emperor, the Empress and their youngest son, a powerful opposition, in which certain ecclesiastics, and among them Walla, abbot of Corby, cousin German, and but lately one of the privy councillors of Charlemagne, joined eagerly. Some had at heart the unity of the Empire, which Louis was breaking up more and more. Others were concerned for the spiritual interests of the church, which Louis, in spite of his piety and by reason of his weakness, often permitted to be attacked. Thus strengthened, the conspirators considered themselves certain of success. They had the Empress Judith carried off and shut up in the convent of St. Rontigon at Poitiers and Louis in person came to deliver himself up to them in Compiègne, where they were assembled. There they passed a decree to the effect that the power and title of emperor were transferred from Louis to Lothaire, his eldest son, that the act whereby a share of the empire had but lately been assigned to Charles was annulled, and that the act of 817, which had regulated the petition of Louis dominions after his death, was once more in force. 
But soon there was a burst of reaction in favour of the emperor. Luthier's two brothers, jealous of his late elevation, made overtures of their father. The ecclesiastics were a little ashamed at being mixed up in a revolt. The people felt pity for the poor, honest emperor. And the general assembly, meeting at Nimeguen, abolished the acts of Compiègne and restored to Louis his title and his power. But it was not long before there was a revolt again, originating this time with Pepin, king of Aquitaine. Louis fought him and gave Aquitaine to Charles the Bald. The alliance between the three sons of Hermengrad was at once renewed. They raised an army, the emperor marched against them with his, and the two hosts met between Colmer and Berle, in a place called Le Champ Rouge, the Field of Red. Negotiations were set on foot, and Louis was called upon to leave his wife Judith and his son Charles, and put himself under the guardianship of his eldest sons. He refused. But just when the conflict was about to commence, desertion took place in Louis's army. Most of the prelates, Liec, and men-at-arms who had accompanied him, passed over to the camp of Luthier, and the field of red became the field of falsehood, the Champ de Mensonge. Louis, left almost alone, ordered his attendants to withdraw. Being unwilling, he said, made any one of them should lose life or limb on his account and surrendered to his sons. They received him with great demonstrations of respect, but without relinquishing the prosecution of their enterprise. Lothair hastily collected an assembly, which proclaimed him emperor and the addition of divers territories to the kingdoms of Aquitaine and Bavaria. And, three months afterward, another assembly, meeting at Compiègne, declared the emperor Louis to have forfeited the crown for having, by his faults and incapacity, suffered in sink so sadly low the empire which had been raised to grandeur and brought into unity by Charlemagne and his predecessors. Louis submitted to this decision, himself read out aloud, in the church of Saint-Médard at Suissons, but not quite unresistingly, a confession in eight articles of his faults and, laying his baldric upon the altar, stripped off his royal robe, and received from the hands of Ibo, Archbishop of Ries, the grey vestment of a penitent. Lothair considered his father dethroned for good, and himself henceforth sole emperor. But he was mistaken, for years longer the scenes which have just been described kept repeating themselves again and again. Rivalries and secret plots began once more between the three victorious brothers and their partisans. Popular feeling revived in favour of Louis. A large portion of the clergy shared it. Several counts of Neustria and Burgundy appeared in arms in the name of the deposed emperor, and the seductive and able Judith came afresh upon the scene and gained over the course of her husband and her son a multitude of friends. In 834, two assemblies, one meeting at Saint-Denis and the other at Thionville, annulled all the acts of the assembly of Compiègne, and for the third time put Louis in possession of the imperial title and power. He displayed no violence in his use of it, but he was growing more and more irresolute and weak. When, in 838, the second of his rebellious sons, Pepin, king of Aquitaine, died suddenly. Louis, ever under the sway of Judith, speedily convoked at Vaughan in 839, 
Once more, and for the last time, a general assembly, whereat, leaving his son Louis of Bavaria, reduced to his kingdom in Eastern Europe, he divided the rest of his dominions into two nearly equal parts, separated by the course of the Mez and the Rhone. Between these two parts, he left the choice to Lothaire, who took the eastern portion, promising at the time to guarantee the western portion to his younger brother Charles. Louis the Germanic protested against this partition and took up arms to resist it. His father, the emperor, set himself in motion toward the Rhine to reduce him to submission, but, on arriving close to Mayence, he caught a violent fever and died on the 20th of June, 840, at the castle Ingelheim, on a little island in the river. His last acts were a fresh proof of his goodness towards even his rebellious sons and of his solicitude for his last-born. He sent to Louis the Germanic his pardon, and to Lothaire a golden crown and sword, at the same time biding him fulfil his father's wishes on behalf of Charles and Judith. There is no telling whether, in the credulousness of his good nature, Louis had, at his dying hour, any great confidence in the appeal he made to his son Lothaire, and in the impression which would be produced on his other son, Louis of Bavaria, by the pardon bestowed. The prayers of the dying are of little avail against violent passions and barbaric manners. Scarcely was Louis the debonair dead, when Lothaire was already conspiring against young Charles, and was in secret alliance for his despoilment with Pepin II, the late king of Aquitaine's son, who had taken up arms for the purpose of seizing his father's kingdom, in the possession of which his grandfather Louis had not been pleased to confirm him. Charles suddenly learnt that his mother Judith was on the point of being besieged in Poitiers by the Aquitanians, and, in spite of the friendly protestation sent to him by Lothair, it was not long before he discovered the plot formed against him. He was not wanting in shrewdness or energy, and having first provided for his mother's safety, he set about forming an alliance in the case of their common interests with his other brother, Louis the Germanic, who was equally in danger from the ambition of Lothair. The historians of the period do not say what negotiator was employed by Charles on this distant and delicate mission, but several circumstances indicated that the Empress Judith herself undertook it, that she went in quest of the King of Bavaria, and it was she who, with the accustomed grace and address, determined him to make common cause with his youngest against their eldest brother. Divers' incidents retarded for a whole year the outburst of his family plot and of the war of which it was the precursor. The position of the young King Charles appeared for some time a very bad one. Certain chieftains, said the historian Nittard, faithful to his mother and to him, and having nothing more to lose than life or limb, chose rather to die gloriously than to betray their king. The arrival of Louis the Germanic and his troops helped to swell the forces and increase the confidence of Charles, and it was on the 21st of June, 841, exactly a year after the death of Louis the Debonair, that of Lothaire and Pepin on the one side, and that of Charles the Bald and Louis the Germanic on the other, stood face to face in the neighbourhood of the village of Fontenelle, six leagues from Moya on the rivulet of Audry, never according to such evidence as is forthcoming, since the battle of the plains of Chalon against the Huns, and that of Poitiers against the Saracens, 
had so great masses of men been engaged. There would be nothing untruth-like, says that scrupulous authority M. Furio, in putting the whole number of combatants at 300,000, and there is nothing to show that either of the two armies was much less numerous than the other. However that may be, the leaders hesitated for four days to come to blows, and while they were hesitating, the old favourite, not only of Louis the Debonair, but also, according to several chroniclers, of the Empress Judith, held himself aloof with his troops in the vicinity, having made equal promise of assistance to both sides and waiting to govern his decision for the prospect afforded by his first conflict. The battle began on the 25th of June at daybreak and was at first in favour of Lothair, but the troops of Charles the Bald recovered the advantage which had been lost by those of Louis the Germanic and the action was soon nothing but a terribly simple scene of carnage between enormous masses of men charging hand to hand again and again with a front extending over a couple of leagues. Before midday, the slaughter, the plunder, the spoliation of the dead, all was over. The victory of Charles and Louis was complete. The victors had retired to their camp, and there remained nothing on the field of battle but corpses in thick heaps or a long line according as they had fallen in the disorder of flight or steadily fighting in their ranks. Accursed be this day, cries Angulbert, one of Lothar's officers in rough Latin verse, be it unnumbered in the return of the year, but wiped out of all remembrance, be it unlit by the light of the sun, be it without either dawn or twilight, accursed also be this night, this awful night in which fell the brave, the most expert in battle. I near hath seen more fearful slaughter. In streams of blood fell Christian men. The linen vestments of the dead did whiten the campaign, even as it is whitened by the birds of autumn. In spite of this battle, which appeared a decisive one, Lothair made zealous efforts to continue the struggle. He scaled the countries wherein he hoped to find partisans. To the Saxons he promised the unrestricted re-establishment of their pagan worship, and several of the Saxon tribes responded to his appeal. Louis the Germanic and Charles the Bald, having information of these preliminaries, resolved to solemnly renew their alliance. Several months after their victory at Fontenay, in February 842, they repaired both of them, each with his army, to Argentaria, on the right bank of the Rhine, between Belle and Strasbourg. And there, at an open-air meeting, Louis, first addressing the chieftains about him in the German tongue, said, Ye all know how often, since our father's death, Lothair hath attacked us, in order to destroy us, this my brother and me. Having never been able, as brothers and Christians, or in any just way, to obtain peace from him, we were constrained to appeal to the judgment of God. Lothair was beaten and retired, whither he could, with his following, for we, restrained by paternal affection and moved with compassion for Christian people, were unwilling to pursue them to extermination. Neither then nor aforetime did we demand aught else save that each of us should be maintained in his rights. But he, rebelling against the judgment of God, ceaseth not to attack us as enemies, this my brother and me, 
and he destroyeth the peoples in fire and pillage and the sword. That is the cause which hath united us afresh, and as we trow that ye doubt the soulness of our alliance and our fraternal union, we have resolved to bind ourselves afresh by this oath in your presence, being led thereto by no prompting of wicked covetousness, but only that we may secure our common advantage in case that, by your aid, God should cause us to obtain peace. If then I violate, which God forbid, this oath that I am about to take to my brother, I hold you all quit of submission to me and of the faith ye have sworn to me. Charles repeated his speech, word for word, to his own troops, in the Romance language, in the idiom derived from a mixture of Latin and of the tongues of ancient Gaul, and spoken, thenceforth, with varieties of dialect and pronunciation, in nearly all parts of Frankish Gaul. After this address, Louis pronounced and Charles repeated after him, each in his own tongue, the oath coached in these terms. For the love of God, for the Christian people, and for our common weal, from this day forth, and so long as God shall grant me power and knowledge, I will defend this my brother, and will be an aid to him in everything, as one ought to defend his brother, provided that he do likewise unto me, and I will never make with Lothair any covenant which may be, to my knowledge, to the damage of this my brother. When the two brothers and thus sworn, the two armies, officers and men, took in their turn a similar oath, going bail in a mass for the engagements of their kings. Then they took up their quarters, all of them, for some time between Verme and Mayence, and followed up their political proceeding with military fate, precursors of the knightly tournaments of the Middle Ages. A place of meeting was fixed, says a contemporary historian Itard, as a spot suitable for this kind of exercises. Here were drawn up, on one side, a certain number of combatants, Saxons, Vascanians, Austrasians, or Britons. There were ranged, on the opposite side, an equal number of warriors, and the two divisions advanced, each against the other, as if to attack. One of them, with their bucklers at their backs, took to flight, as if to seek, in the main body shelter against those who were pursuing them. Then suddenly facing about, they dashed out in pursuit of those before whom they had just been flying. This sport lasted until two kings, appearing with all the youth of their suits, rode up at a gallop, brandishing their spears and chasing first one lot and then the other. It was a fine sight to see so many temper among so many valiant folk, for great as was the mixture of different nationalities, no one was insulted or maltreated, though the contrary is often the case among men in small numbers and no one one to another. End of section three.